If you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11 today. Uh, if you are new to Bloomfield Baptist, we've been walking through the book of Galatians uh, for several months now. And what we found is that uh, Paul is writing to a group of followers of Christ who have fallen under a false teaching. Uh, Paul had gone to Galatia. He had taught the Galatians what the genuine gospel was. Many people had believed and repented and put their faith in Christ. But after he had left Galatia, uh, there were false teachers who came in. They were Judaizers. Uh, essentially, they were teaching the Galatians that in order to truly be a Christian, you needed to become a Jew first. You needed to go back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Covenant law, uh, you had to follow these Old Testament regulations in order to fully be a part of the people of God. In essence, what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatians was that you needed to have more religion. Uh, you needed to have kind of this, this religious attitude. You needed these religious traditions. And if you truly had that, then you might have a better chance at being a part of God's family. But Paul was trying to refute that and to say, uh, no, there's this contrast that we see between a worldly religion and these religious efforts and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And he is telling the Galatians that if they truly have faith, then they too are a part of the family of God. But we're now at a point in Galatians where Paul is addressing his concerns that perhaps some of these Galatians never had genuine faith to begin with. He's warning them, uh, against the pitfalls of worldly religion that may be hindering them from true faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 and, and this contrast and how Paul deals with this in his letter. And because this is the inspired word of God, out of reverence for it, if you're able to, if you would stand once again as I read the text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God's word to His church. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You would pray with me. Father, I pray today that, that this proclamation of Your Word would not be in vain. I pray, God, that Your Word would be clear to each of us. And Lord, that you would call us to repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, for any here who's yet to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who's yet to repent and trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And for those who have, Lord, come to Christ by faith, I pray they would be encouraged in that faith today. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would walk in faith and in repentance as we hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I came across an article recently that caught my attention. The headline, or, or the title of the article was this. Is religion good or bad for us? 
this article looked at a number of studies and, and different um, surveys in which they tried to discern uh, how does religion actually affect our life. Now, they weren't looking at one particular religion. They weren't looking just at Christianity. In essence, they were just looking at people who considered themselves to be religious in any way. And in fact, one of the studies they looked at found that about three-fourths of Americans uh, consider themselves to be religious. And so religion is very important in our nation to many people for many reasons. And so they tried to identify, is it actually beneficial in a measurable way? One of the studies that were looked at in this article was one that looked at about 9,000 people over the course of about a decade. At the latter part of their life, they were trying to discern what difference does religion make for these people, particularly those who are actively involved in religion. And so, for example, they found that of those who attended church once a week, there was an increase in their lifespan. They actually lived a bit longer. In fact, those who attended church more than once a week, that, that increase in lifespan actually doubled over those who went once a week. And so one of the benefits that were cited in this article was that if you want to live longer, religion can be a good thing. Now, why is that? Well, other things that were looked at in the article were the reasons. One was that you're more connected to a community of people. That's a healthy thing for you. Uh, another was that uh, religion can help people to deal with, with stress and troubles and trials in their life, and therefore they live longer. And another study found that, in general, people that are religious are more moral, and that's a good thing for longevity in life. And so the conclusion of this article was, yes, religion can be good for you. And that's when it comes to the practical aspects of our life. That's when it comes to things like lifespan. But there's a deeper question that comes to us when we consider the issue of religion, and that is our eternal life. And as we come to the book of Galatians, uh, Paul is presenting for the Galatians and for us that that religion may not be the best thing for your soul when you look to that religion to save you. Now, the Scripture says there are good things about religion. It talks about pure and undefiled religion. But what we're looking at is more the context of religion as a system, as a if you do these things, then these things will save you. These steps will lead to salvation. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who are very confused about this. That they're trying to discern what does it mean to, to have this worldly religion and what does it mean to have genuine faith. And so Paul is writing to warn them that it may indeed be this worldly religion that's keeping you from genuine faith. And so we're going to look at these two things as we walk through this passage today in hopes to better understand what it is the Lord has for us in this text, beginning with the first point there in your notes. Now what we find is that worldly religion can hinder us from having genuine faith. Now look again at verse 8. Paul says here, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He is talking to the Galatians about their pre-converted state. He's saying before you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, you were very religious people. So he's not looking to the Galatians saying, you know, before I came and shared the gospel with you, you were all atheists. You all didn't believe in God. He's saying, no, you very much believed. You just believed in the wrong thing. Now, this was very much the culture and the context in which Paul was dealing with on his missionary journeys. He wasn't dealing with a group of people who didn't believe in the existence of a God. They were a group of people who believed in the existence of many gods. 
And so here with the Galatians, he's saying, before when you did not know God, he says, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. And chances are what Paul is referring to here was idol worship. Uh, were those Galatians who would go to the different temples before they heard the gospel and they would worship at all these temples, all these false idols. And so you might have a temple to a god or a goddess over here and all these idols that represented that god or goddess. And then over here you'd have another temple and more gods and goddesses. And he was saying, you, you kind of went out there and you covered your bases and you worshipped and made sacrifices to all these idols. And yet these were no gods at all. They weren't the one true God. And Paul doesn't elaborate much on this in Galatians, but he does in other letters that he writes. And for example, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a situation in which idols are very much at the center of focus. See, the Corinthian believers were struggling because in their day... Uh, they would go to the market to buy their provisions. And when they go to the market, for example, they would buy meat. Well, you had essentially two categories of meat in the market there. Uh, you had that which we might consider to be high-quality meat that you could purchase, but then for a much lesser price, you could receive this meat that many consider to be tainted. It was tainted because it came from idol sacrifice and idol worship. Now, you had different schools of thought. There were some who looked at it and said, well, meat is meat, and this one's cheaper, so I'll buy this, and I don't have a problem with this. You had others who looked at it and said, well, this is involved in demonic activity. We should have nothing to do with this. And so in addressing this concern and issue among the Corinthians, Paul teaches something about idol worship. For example, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so on one hand, Paul is saying that when you're worshiping an idol, you're not worshiping anything. These idols don't represent the one true God. There is only one God. And so you're just offering your worship to absolutely nothing because there's nothing behind that idol of substance. These idols don't represent the one true God. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that the idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul here says that idol may represent nothing, but to those who are sacrificing to demonic beings who are involved in pagan worship, that that idol represents that demonic activity. This then helps us to understand what Paul is saying in Galatians 4.8 when he talks about you were enslaved. He's saying that when you went and you worshipped those idols at those different temples, you were actually enslaved to those demonic powers. You were enslaved to them in your worship to them when you did not know God. So how does that fit into the greater argument here? Well, Paul is clearly saying in Galatians 4, don't turn back and become enslaved again. The question is, what is it we shouldn't be enslaved to? The entire book of Galatians up to this point when speaking of slavery has been talking about slavery to the law. 
It's been talking about enslaving ourselves to the burden of the law. It's been talking about the law in the form of why would you bring yourself under this old covenant requirement or requirement, put that burden on yourself and be enslaved to it. Now Paul shifts gears a bit and he says, remember before you heard the gospel, you were worshiping idols, you were enslaved to those idols. Now what I think Paul's doing here is he's making a connection. Why would you turn back? Not just to slavery to idols. I don't think that's actually what he's saying because that's not what the Judaizers were tempting the Galatians with. The, the Judaizers didn't come to Galatia with a cart full of idols and say, listen, you need to reject the genuine gospel. You need to pick up one of these idols, one of these tokens. You need to worship them instead. No, the Judaizers were saying, your faith is not enough. You need to put something else along with it. You need to go back to the Old Covenant. You need to go back to the Old Testament. You need to be good Jewish believers like we are in order to be fully believers. And I think what Paul is essentially saying is this. Just as foolish as it would be for you to go back to the temples and back to that idol worship, it's just as foolish for you to begin this other form of slavery whether it's pagan worship or it's any form of worldly religion, you are enslaving yourself to it when you miss out on the genuine gospel. And those very things may be what's hindering you from the genuine gospel. And friends, it's not so different in our day. I realize that for most of us, we probably didn't wake up this morning tempted to go to a pagan temple and offer sacrifice to an idol. <laughs> In fact, we read about these things and we think they're rather archaic. We may think, well, yeah, there's parts of the world that do that, but that's not really what we do here. We, we, we think with some amount of distance between us and, and this notion of sacrificing to an idol, sacrificing to a false god. But they, make no mistake about it. In our culture, we have our idols. And we have our false gods. And they just take on different forms and our worship of them looks a bit different. You see, anything that takes your focus off of worshiping the one true God is a false God. That, that which becomes the, the, the object of your affection and devotion is an idol. And so often these things come to us under the guise of religion and many times with Jesus' name right on it. So it's not so much that we're tempted to go follow after other world religions, but, but even under the umbrella of Christianity, many of us have fallen into this notion of religious practice over what it means to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so what that looks like then is things like this. So say you do something and you feel guilty about it. Well, there's all types of churches and denominations who'll say, well, you just, you just come tell the priest about that. You, you come tell somebody else about that, you'll be absolved, you'll be okay. You, you've done some wrong things, you need to atone for those, you need to make penance for those. So if you just do these good works over here, these acts of charity over here, that, that will make up for what you did wrong. If you just give, if you just make a vow, if you just try hard enough, that will overcome your sin problem. Friends, that is not genuine faith. That is worldly religion. 
And that so often gets in the way of genuine faith because people think, well, if I try hard enough and if I do enough, then I will be okay. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is that they are pursuing this worldly religion in the form of the Old Covenant, Old Testament law. And in doing that, they aren't moving closer to genuine faith. They're moving farther away from genuine faith. And Paul is saying that is a very dangerous move. The world religion, worldly religion tells you that you can save yourself through works and devotion. But genuine faith helps us to see that we cannot save ourselves and the only work that is saving is Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Scripture says our works don't save us, our works condemn us. Worldly religion says if you will try harder, if you will make vows, if you will fix yourself, then you have a much better shot at the afterlife. Genuine faith says you need to stop trying. And you need to die to yourself. And you need to trust in Jesus Christ. Worldly religion says that your good works can lead to your salvation. Genuine faith says, no, it is your salvation that should lead to good works. And so when we put these two beside each other, we find that, that, that there's gravitational pull at times towards worldly religion because it's something we can do with our hands. Something we can account for. Something we can feel good about. But so often it hinders us from genuine faith. Now I've often thought about it this way. Let's say, for example, you were to put an ad in every newspaper in our country. And let's say you were to try this two separate ways. The first way would be this. You would put an ad in every newspaper in our country. And the ad would read something along the lines of this. It would present the, the, the clear, genuine gospel and it would call people to faith and repentance and there would be an address with that ad that would simply say, if you indeed have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, that this free gift of salvation, if you're responding to this free gift, if you'll just send your name in this envelope to this address just to let us know. I've wondered how many responses we would get from the at ad compared to running one a bit different. An ad that simply said, we can guarantee you salvation if you'll just send a dollar to this address. Friends, I think we would get a lot of $1 bills. Because there's something to that that people think, well, maybe that's not true, maybe it is, I don't know, but I just want to cover all my bases. I just want to make sure I'm taken care of. It sounds kind of silly to think, well, if you send a dollar, you can get salvation, but it's something I can do, so I'll do it. See, so often we trust in the work of our hands, and we want to cover our bases to think we're going to be okay. I was reminded of this recently as I heard a friend, a pastor, share a story about during a time in his life when he was a youth pastor, he had a student come to him, who wanted to be baptized. So he was excited. He would not known the student very long. They just started coming to his youth group. I think it was the first or second time they'd been there. And so uh, very quickly he sat down and started talking to him about, you know, well, why is it you want to be baptized? Well, this young lady started sharing about, well, when I was, when I was an infant, I was baptized in the Catholic church. And then uh, I got a little bit older and we started going to a Presbyterian church and I got baptized there. 
And then, as I got a little bit older, we started going to a Jehovah's Witness church, and I got baptized there, and, and now my parents are actually Mormon, and so I got baptized in the Mormon church, and now I want to be baptized here. This pastor was a bit confused and said, you know, don't you realize there are vast differences in what these people believe that you've talked about? The young lady said, yeah, but I, I don't know which one of them's right. I want to cover all my bases. I want to make sure I'm okay. And friends, maybe you haven't had that same experience. In fact, I'd be surprised to find if anybody in here had. But, but sometimes we view the Christian church in that same way. I want to cover my bases. I want to make sure I'm okay. If it means writing a check for this or signing up for this or doing this, then I'll do it because I want to cover my bases. Friends, that's not genuine faith. That's trusting in the works of our hands. That's worldly religion. And Paul says it may be that very thing that's hindering us from seeing what it means to have genuine faith. And he goes on then, point two, to say this. Genuine faith provides what worldly religion cannot. To know God and to be known by God. And notice what Paul writes in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to become once more. Here again, Paul makes that, 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 that connection between slavery to those idols and now slavery to the law. He says, why would you want to turn from knowing God and being known by God to go back to those things? See, worldly religion so often teaches us things about God. You can learn about God through religion. But Paul says here, genuine faith offers something different because genuine faith helps you not just to know about God, but actually to know God. And a deeper truth is to be known by God. And one commentator said it this way, God's knowledge of His people harkens back to the Hebrew verb know, where God's knowledge refers to His choosing of someone, the setting of His affection upon someone. So when God knows, it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. And what the Scripture means when it says that word know, especially in the Old Testament, is that knowledge has something to do with a volitional choice on God's part, where in knowing, He is setting apart and setting aside. He is choosing. So for example, Genesis 18, 19, we read that God knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of the Jewish people. Amos 3, 2, God knew Israel and chose them out of all the people groups on the earth. And Jeremiah 1, 5, God knew Jeremiah before he was born and hence appointed him to be a prophet. So what Paul is saying is just as the Scripture teaches in 1 John 4.19, that we love because God first loved us, is that we know God because God first knew us. That's Paul's point in this letter. He has chosen, he has adopted, he's made us heirs to the promise. And so what the Scripture is teaching us here, what Paul is saying, is that if you're a follower of Christ, then you know God and you are known by God. Now consider the depth of what that means. Consider what it means to be known by God. The, the scripture says in Job 37 that God's knowledge is perfect. 
Now, I appreciate that verse more and more the older I get. And the more I realize that my knowledge is very imperfect. I forget a lot of things. Some of you are older than me. I'm surprised you're even here today and remembered where the church was. As we get older, we just start to forget. We don't remember things. And then when we do remember things, our memory of them might not be quite how they really were. Our memories are tainted. Our memories aren't quite clear. Our knowledge seems to fade, especially the older we get. But the Scripture says God's knowledge is never tainted. God's knowledge never fades. God's knowledge is perfect. So I can say to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. In fact, he goes on to say in Jeremiah 17 that, that he knows our hearts better than we know them. says that the heart is deceitful above many things. Now that is very counterculture. My family and I had a chance this last week to go to the Smoky Mountains for fall break and if you've been there, you know, there's all these little shops and all these little uh, placards and things you can get and t-shirts. And I remember we went into one shop there and there was this, this whole wall or shelf area just dedicated to different mottos about your heart. Follow your heart, said over and over and over again. That, that is the mantra of our world. Follow your heart. What's the problem with that? The problem with that, the Scripture says, is that our heart is deceitful, that our heart will deceive us, that our heart will lead us the wrong direction. The Scripture says our heart will actually lead us in a direction exactly opposite of where God calls us to go. Scripture says we don't even fully understand our heart. That's why we're so easily deceived by our heart. And so when we think about knowledge... Our knowledge is tainted, our knowledge is imperfect, but God's knowledge is perfect. Now consider what that means in regards to your sin. God knows perfectly your sin and my sin. The things that we think no one else knows about, perhaps the things that no one else knows about, God knows perfectly. The sin that we have forgotten, God knows perfectly. The sin that we so desperately try to cover up, try to explain away, try to make it look better than it is, God knows it perfectly. Think about, for example, King David and his sin with Bathsheba. And as that sin starts to become to a point where it's going to be evident to others, David does everything he can to cover it up including murder. He wants to get rid of all the people that might stand in his way, anyone who might expose the truth, and yet God knows the truth of his sin, and God exposes his sin. We think about Judas among the disciples, how he was able to cover his sin, his true heart, his deceiving ways, his murderous plots. The other disciples did not know about these things. But Jesus knew perfectly because Jesus knew his sin. You think about the woman at the well who barely opens up her mouth and says anything, and Jesus is revealing to her her sin. He knows it perfectly. You think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and religious leaders who would stand at a distance and were whisper things far out of earshot of Jesus, and yet he knew their heart and he would respond to those because he knew perfectly their sin. 
you consider that God knows your heart better than you do. He knows the darkness of it. He knows the wickedness of it. And then you consider how glorious the gospel is in light of that. The scripture says that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't pull one over on God. God didn't think he was getting something better than he actually was. God knows our wickedness and the depths of our sin. And even knowing those things, Jesus died on the cross for us. And so Paul here says, why would you exchange that for some religious tradition? Well, why would you exchange the beauty of being known by God and knowing God and Christ dying for you, knowing how wicked and awful you are? Why would you set that aside just to go over here to some religious tradition that might teach you some things about God that doesn't allow you to actually know God? In fact, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's pointing to the ceremonial laws under the Mosaic law. All these ceremonies that we've studied in Genesis and Exodus. And as we've studied them, what have we seen? We've seen that they were all to teach God's people something about Him. Something about the gospel. They were pointing them forward to the gospel. Now Paul's saying the fullness of the gospel is here. Why would you go back to these things? You're already here. You've already received the truth. And yet you'd exchange this for that. How foolish. It brings Paul to a point of concern where I believe he begins to wonder, are these Galatians even saved to begin with? Which brings us to our third point. Worldly religion is weak and ultimately worthless, but genuine faith perseveres. Verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Why would Paul say this? Because what Paul is saying is, as I look at the evidence, as I look at the faith, the, the, the fruit of your lives, I'm beginning to wonder, have you even responded to the gospel? Or were you listening to anything I said? Have I just ministered to you in vain? I think Paul's wrestling at this point with whether or not the Galatians have genuine faith. Now consider what Paul has witnessed. When Paul comes to Galatia, just as he does on his other missionary journeys, Paul shares the gospel and people respond to the gospel. They make some sort of, of, of verbal response some sort of verbal confession that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe God raised Him from the dead. They give this evidence that they now believe in Christ. And then they likely followed up that with baptism. That's the consistent pattern we see in the New Testament is that at that confession comes, so that profession comes through baptism. Now baptism in Paul's day in Galatia was a bit different than baptism is today in Bloomfield Baptist Church. So you come forward, you make a profession of faith, you meet with one of our pastors, we talk to you more about the gospel, we talk more about baptism, we get to the point where you're ready to be baptized, we fill up the tank with water there, and then here in front of our church family, and anyone else you might invite, you get baptized. But in Galatia, it would have been a very different situation. They would have been baptized there in public, 
in front of all their friends and family, all their community who are walking by, many of them perhaps going to those pagan temples to offer those, those sacrifices to idols, they'd look over there and they'd see someone getting baptized, someone making that profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. This was not an easy thing to do. This was taking a bold stand for the gospel. So Paul was writing in this context of people who'd taken this bold stand, but now he's saying to them, I'm beginning to wonder, are you even saved in the first place? Now we look at that and we might say, well, yeah, that's a legitimate question, but think about that in the context of our day. We live in a culture now, especially those of us who are Baptists, those of us who are members of Bloomfield Baptist, churches like this, we live in a culture now where we hold so tightly to that walking of the aisle, that profession of faith, that baptism, that many times we completely ignore what comes after. And this is the fruit of that. We have hundreds, hundreds of people who are members of Bloomfield Baptist Church who I've never met in eight years some whom you haven't met in 20 or 30 years, some who haven't physically stepped foot in our church in 40 or 50 years, not just our church, but any church at all. And often when this topic comes up, when we begin to talk about these things and look at what, what do we do, what's our biblical responsibility, there's going to be a voice or at times many voices that say, well, certainly we can't remove people from the membership role. I mean, I remember that day they walked the aisle and that day they got baptized. And we completely ignore the fruit of their lives. The Apostle Paul says we should have legitimate concern whether or not that person is saved to begin with. And if we are holding tightly to that as salvific, we may be actually hindering that person from genuine faith in Christ because we're telling them they're okay when God's Word is telling them they are condemned. The fruit of your faith is perseverance. And if there is no ongoing perseverance in your life, the fruit of that is there may not have been genuine conversion. Tom Schreiner says it this way, genuine conversion cannot be restricted to a one-time event in the past. Those who are saved demonstrate their new life by continuing in faith until the last day. Their perseverance and faith functions as evidence that they have truly come to know God. Therefore, the grace of God can never become an excuse for license for sin. Those who are truly saved demonstrate such by clinging to the cross of Christ until the end. And so, friend, what I would propose to you today from the Word of God is this. If someone is not clinging to the cross of Christ, they do not know the cross of Christ. And the worst thing we can offer that person is false assurance that they're okay. Because the scripture says clearly, if we indeed have genuine faith, that faith will persevere. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There's great assurance in that passage that if you're genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in Jesus' hand, you're in the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out. But that means you're in Jesus' hand, in the Father's hand, and your faith should bear fruit of that. The Scripture goes on to talk more about this perseverance. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Scripture clearly teaches that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We are completely secure in Him. But friends, if we are secure in Him, we should look different than the world around us. Genuine faith perseveres and genuine faith bears fruit. The fruit of worldly religion, the Scripture says here, is weak and is worthless and offers us no security. Friends, are you secure in your faith today? Or are you often filled with doubt? Do you wonder, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, have I really trusted Christ? If you genuinely have, the Scripture says, you can rest confidently, you can be secure But perhaps the reason for that question and that doubt that's there is because you've never genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ. And it is entirely possible that you've been in this church or another for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you have gone through the motions of religious tradition. And yet you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I read an article just this week in Kentucky Today about a situation just like that. The title was this, Valued Church Member of 50 Years Gets Her Salvation Settled for Good. This article went on to talk about how at First Baptist Church in Fulton, Kentucky, uh, there was a recent Sunday when Alma Brock declared that she had been born again. Now the congregation was excited and the congregation was shocked. Why? Because Alma had been faithfully attending and serving at First Baptist Church since she and her husband of 67 years, George, who was also a deacon in that church, had moved to the community in the late 1960s. And so since the 1960s, she's been a member of the church, serving in the church, and yet now she's come forward saying she wants to profess Christ. She wants to be saved. She said this, I was never trying to deceive anyone. I just assumed all these years that I was saved. Over the past year, she talked about how doubts had crept into her heart and mind. She wondered if she could dare let anyone know what would people think. So one day, she went and talked to the pastor, and as she talked to him, it became very clear that when she was nine years old at church camp and prayed the sinner's prayer and got baptized, that she didn't fully understand what it meant to know God and be known by God. She knew things about the gospel, but she didn't really surrender her life to Jesus Christ. 
And so for decades she tried to serve and to do, hoping that would give her salvation legitimacy. That would save her. That would give her security. And it never did. She came to that point of understanding she had never truly responded to the gospel of Jesus. And so she overcame her pride and her worry about what others might think. And she walked an aisle just a few weeks ago. And she asked Christ to be her Lord. Her pastor went on to say this, I'm so thankful for the Lord's grace and not allowing pride or fear of what others might think to silence Miss Alma's doubts. What a wonderful testimony of grace and perseverance. May it drive every pastor and every church member to never assume salvation, but to trust in and proclaim nothing less than the gospel of Jesus, calling all people to repent and believe. Friends, today I'm not asking for your religious resume. I'm not asking if you remember the day you walked an aisle. I'm not asking you when you were baptized. I'm simply asking you this. Are you confident that you have placed your faith fully in our Lord for your salvation? Are you confident that you have repented and turned from sin and trusted in Christ? And friends, if you are not confident that you've done that, then the Scripture says this clearly. Today is the day of salvation. Why wait another day? Why wait another hour? Why wait another minute? Your salvation can be secure today if you will call out to the Lord. The Scripture says that there is none gone so far that God's arm cannot reach them. The Scripture says clearly in Romans 10, if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? We're about to close our service during this time of invitation by singing Amazing Grace. I want you to consider what it is we're about to sing and ask again this question. Have you experienced this? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Friends, is that the confession of your soul today? And if it's not, the good news of the gospel is it can be. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing. And as we sing, friend, if you have any questions, any doubts about your salvation, those can be settled today. I'll be available during this time of invitation to talk with you more about the gospel, more about church membership. If you want to talk more about the gospel, have more questions that are unsettled and unanswered, I'd love to schedule a time with you this week, next week, when myself or Pastor Matt, Pastor Nick, others in our church could sit down with you and talk about these very things. Settle these questions. Settle these doubts. And know Christ as Lord and respond to that amazing grace. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father, I do ask that in this time that you would make it clear to each of us whether or not we truly have trusted in Jesus. 
And Lord, I pray that if anyone here is holding on to false assurance, they're holding on to worldly religion, they're holding on to some system of belief that if I try harder, if I do better, I'll be okay. I pray that you would overwhelm them through the power of your Holy Spirit to see the truth of the gospel. I pray that today would be the hour they first believe. believe. And Lord, I pray if we have any among us like Miss Alma who are read about in that article who just weeks ago trusted in Christ. Anyone who perhaps has been on our membership roles for a long time, they've served here, they've done so much, but Lord, today that they realize they're unsettled, they're, they're just not confident that they truly are a follower of Christ. I pray, God, that you would settle those doubts and those worries and those fears, that they would truly confess Christ as Lord, not be concerned about what others might think, but Lord, know that we would celebrate that decision with them. And so, Father, I pray now for our time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.